0: All right, well, we've got a lot to do here. Let's go ahead and dig in. Chapter 10, verse 1. I'm going to read the whole text this morning, all the way through 11, and then we'll jump back and go verse by verse and expound the ideas that the text is bringing up to us. Verse 1. I, I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face to you, but bold... Toward you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Okay, so what's going on here? Well, it is apparent for, at least inferred here, right, that Paul's ministry has been under scrutiny by a group of people in the church, or else he wouldn't be saying these things. So apparently there's a group of people or persons within the church that are jockeying for leadership. This is very reminiscent to the, the book of Galatians, uh, which we went through as a church a few years ago together. And the story from there to here kind of looks the same. You know, Paul and his companions travel to the city, uh, they settle for a while, they start preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? They come into the town and they start preaching the gospel. Before long, they have a following, which quickly becomes a church plant. And As they plant the church, they, they raise up leaders within the church, and then as soon as they can, they pack up and go to the next region and start the process over, preaching the gospel and planting churches. It seems as soon as the dust settles, though, from, from their departure from a town, as, as soon as they leave and move on, uh, other people move in. Wolves move in. As soon as they're gone, other people start trying to gain authority, gain leadership. This isn't something out of the ordinary, right? I think, I think every church that is trying to stay true to the gospel has stories like this. No one is immune. It happens a lot. People who would have power, who want power or leadership, people who deem themselves worthy, start spreading discord, discontent in a church. And in an opportune moment, they make a play for power. But the damage from this is always significant. Churches are split or fail altogether, leaving many without church homes. People are most often just plain discouraged when they see this within the church when they see these plays for power, and political power almost, within the church. Because what does that mean when they see the same thing in the church that they see outside of it? What does it mean about God's role? It's a challenge and a struggle to their faith. So these things carry weight. They cause people to stumble. They cause problems for believers. I think these things are extremely close to the heart of God, and, and I trust that as we study the next few chapters, we'll see that as well. Now, as we go on in the next few chapters, we will talk uh, more about these false apostles, these, these people who are moving into the church and trying to gain power. Um, but this text this week seems to be addressing a specific threat to Paul's status as an apostle with authority. Now the problem with that is that his apostleship is directly tied to his new and radical message, right? The message that he brought in is the message that he had authority to teach, That is the gospel. So, just as in Galatians, the same is here. These critics of Paul had not just been criticizing him, but ultimately they're bringing a message contrary to the one that Paul taught. Paul will not allow, however, these people in the church to water down or change the gospel in any way. He's very defensive of the message. This then is a much larger problem than Paul versus his critics right? This isn't just him defending himself. This is a gospel issue, which explains his urgent change in tone, right? He goes from being encouraging and pastoral to now he's going to start laying down the law. Let's look at, at exactly what he said back in verse 1. He says, I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble and face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. So he says, I, Paul, myself. A, a triple identification here. What he's doing, though, is he's shifting this part of his letter from, being from him and his companion Timothy, which was in, in chapter 1, verse 1. It's supposed to be from the both of them. He's making sure that everyone knows that this is a personal address from him to them. He wants to make it clear that these are his words, and they are going to be very strong words, right? He starts out by referring to the meekness, though, and the gentleness of Christ. So in his defense, in his way of of attacking back these critics who are coming against him, he starts off in verse 1 with the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Why? I think there's there's a couple reasons here we'll we'll lay out. Two. uh, First, he has to remind us that Christ's meekness and gentleness are foundational to the Christian life. As we approach Jesus for salvation, as we continue on in life as a Christian, it is his gentleness that allows us to live in relationship with him and to really understand how sweet it is to have a relationship with Jesus. Isaiah spoke of him specifically in this capacity when he said in our reading of the law today in Isaiah 42: A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. What does that mean? It means that although he has the power to destroy, he shows mercy and kindness to the very things that are perishing. A bruised weed and a a faintly burning wick are things that are about to be destroyed on their own. Shows that the Savior, first and foremost, has a character of gentleness, of meekness when approaching the lost. Paul must have been thinking of this verse and its fulfillment in the person of Jesus. His gentleness is the only reason we can go back to him when we sin again and again, when we fail again and again. The only reason we can approach the throne is that gentleness and that meekness. His gentleness is the, the very cord to which we cling to that keeps us from falling into the chasm between us. It's his gentleness, the gentleness of Christ, that makes him so beautiful. Paul first wants to remind us of Christ's beauty in this way. The second thing he's he's doing by bringing this up first is that he's reminding us of Jesus' meekness and gentleness. Paul's modeling for us the way that we then ought to engage criticism. We should engage in the same way that we saw laid out for us in the model of Jesus. Our main aim as we interact with our critics is to be first. And foremost, humility and gentleness. Quite the opposite of our natural inclination. When we are attacked, when we are criticized, naturally, what do we do? We either do this or this, right? Our natural inclination is either to to defend or, or go on the offense. We put our defenses up immediately. Jesus shows us that we don't need to put our defenses up. We don't need to put our defenses up. Jesus shows us that, that, that he is the one who has the power, and so therefore we can approach people who criticize us without fear of losing any sort of credibility. He allows us to be humble. Now, the thing that we all must remember is that when talking about the gentle nature of Christ, it's also one of the great paradoxes of our faith, right? Right? We believe that Jesus, the Son of God, the Word, was the Word by which all things were created and are held together. There is no greater power in the universe than Him. So when we say He is gentle and meek, it's because He chooses to act towards us in that way. It is simply His will to act gently towards us. It is not, then, weakness. He's not forced to be gentle because he has no power to back himself up with. So, with. so the Christian, when we engage with critics, then we can afford to be gentle and meek. Because who we are in him is not weak, but secure. Now, in the case of the critics in Corinth, Paul had apparently been accused of being hypocritical. That's one of the first main arguments that they have been bringing up against him that he's going to bring up. In verse 1, he's responding to the criticism that, that he is only bold when he's away, but humble in person. There's no quotation marks there, but it's, it seems to be that he's addressing that that is what they've been saying about him. In other words, the criticism is that he's all bark, no bite, right? He, takes a, he, makes a, he talks a big game, but he's wimpy when you confront him face to face. And also, they are saying that he is a hypocrite and that he's preaching the gospel but walking according to the flesh or living a life that's following the desires of the world. He doesn't do what he says, in other words. What he is really saying, though, in verse 2 is that he does not wish to come in with guns blazing, right? He desires to be gentle, he desires to be meek with these believers. But he is counting on having to be strong against the critics for the sake of the gospel that he preached. Let's read verses 3 through 6 again. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is clear. So Paul here now is shifting. He is on the war path, right? He's using several military metaphors in these few verses. It almost sounds like a military campaign. They're very strong metaphors, but his argument is that overall this is not physical. This is beyond the physical. While others are making accusations based on the physical world, he's saying our battle and our victory is metaphysical inasmuch that it is beyond the physical. Our battle lies with what cannot be seen. Though we walk in the flesh, he means though we are here in our bodies, we do not battle according to the flesh. His distinction is this isn't the way that we interact with each other. So then our battle, an actual battle then, as he's pointing out in the context of this text, is our thoughts, And ideas are ideas of ultimate truth. So what then are the weapons that he's referring to? Because he's referring to weapons in here. He's talking about destroying. He's talking about punishing. He's talking about having the the power to destroy strongholds and wage warfare. So what weapons is he referring to? If they're not physical, then what are they? I think another one of his letters, Ephesians 6, comes to mind. If if you know what I'm talking about, chapter 6 talks about the whole armor of God in that text, right? And most of that armor is is defensive. But there is some offensive weapons, some offensive tools listed there. We can look at Ephesians 6 and 17 says, uh, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, there are arguably other tools of warfare for the Christian, but in in this direct context, Paul's reminding them. He's referring to the word itself, the word that they taught to the Corinthians. And that word is expressed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, what he's saying, the message that we came to preach to you is our greatest weapon. The message of the gospel is the thing that destroys strongholds. And we use weapons against what? The text says strongholds, arguments, lofty opinions, and then thoughts. So he's referring not to the spiritual demonic strongholds, as sometimes uh, this text is taken out of context to say. But he's talking actually about the ideas and thoughts of men that are in opposition to the knowledge of God. And he's not talking about an intellectual knowledge there either. He's talking about knowing God the way that you know your family. It's an intimate, not an intellectual, knowing. The things that, that men raise up in their lives to stop themselves from having to deal with the knowledge of God. Those are the things that the gospel comes in and destroys. So the message of the word, the gospel, has a divine power to tear down the strongholds of ideas and thought. That unbelievers may have conceived to deny the knowledge of God. So, Paul, in this, he's not saying, to be clear, he's not saying, I'm going to come and outwit my critics. That's not what he's saying at all. That's not the way he's going to demolish their strongholds and thoughts. What he's pointing to is that his primary battle, their primary battle, our primary battle should be in preaching the gospel to unbelievers. He's already pointed out in the letter his proof of apostleship. And and we learned about that a few chapters ago, but his proof of apostleship is the church itself. The fruit of his ministry is the church in Corinth. None of them were believers before. They all had strongholds and lofty opinions before he and his companions came and preached the gospel. It's the power of that message as they came in that actually changed their lives, not the person preaching it. Let's reread uh, verse 7. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority Let's be honest with ourselves, right? In verse 7, he says, look at what's before your eyes. The proof in front of you. Paul is stepping back from his after, after his metaphors about warfare and saying, let's look at this logically just for a moment. If he is boasting in his authority, why does he have it and what is its purpose? Well, he's already reminded us that it was their teaching that destroyed the strongholds of ideas and brought the Corinthians to faith in the first place, right? his authority then rests in that. I taught you the true faith, and now you know that it is the truth. The purpose of that authority then, he says, is for their own benefit, not his. Not to lift him up, but for their edification. God gave the authority for building up and not destroying. Well, weren't we just talking about tearing down and destroying a few verses ago? Right? We we were. But tearing down people's arguments in opposition to the gospel is necessary for building them up. I'll say that again. Tearing down people's arguments in opposition to the gospel is necessary for building them up. You can't build someone up on a false foundation. Okay, so here comes a really big difference with the way that our culture around us right now Uh, views and takes arguments. Today, tearing down someone's lofty opinion or what they feel to be true is equivalent to tearing down the person his or herself. That's what modern people feel. If you attack me, if you attack my thoughts, you've attacked me as a person. We studied this extensively in the men's study when we went through Strange New World this fall and many others of you have have read that recently. But I'll summarize the main shift in our thought today is that in our time, uh, the modern people view their core identity in their inner thought life and feelings, right? Their actual identity is rooted in thought life and opinions. Now, the argument we would make then is that the Christian's identity... Is not found within, it is found without. The Christian's identity and core of being is given or gifted to them outside of themselves by a loving creator and savior. It's not something for us to decide or discover. It's not found inward, it's found in Christ. Now These are two very different ways of viewing the self. Now the current modern model of finding yourself within and essentially becoming your thoughts and feelings, uh, works itself out in some very potentially harmful ways. And we all know this, but I think you and I need to, or, or have to, be aware of this difference because this is a gospel issue. Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel, so neither should we be. Like I just said, tearing down people's opposition to the gospel is necessary in order to build them up. So then how do we approach, how do we preach the gospel to an unbeliever whose ideas and thoughts of identity are based in a different place from ours? If we go in looking to tear down their thoughts and ideas, they would view it as tearing them down, causing them to go on the defense, right? There's a couple things here that I think we need to keep in mind in modern day evangelism. And it goes back to just what we just went through. First, meekness and gentleness. Right, knowing the message of the gospel has divine power. In other words, power outside of the physical. Enables us to approach our neighbors with humility. Our Lord was meek. We should be meek as well. We can explain our faith humbly knowing that it's not up to us to convert people, it's not up to us to defend a position to the point of destroying our opponent. We get to be humble. The second thing, and I think Peter has something for us to add here as well. In First Peter two, um, in First Peter two eleven, it says, "Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, flesh which war against your soul." Keep your conduct among the Gentiles as honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So there's a lot to be said, a lot to be said about that. Uh, But I'll try and boil it down as simple as possible. If you want to be a good witness, if you are going to preach the gospel... You need to start with your own life. You need to make sure that your conduct is honorable. The greatest witness to the life changing power of the gospel, then, is changed lives. You can't have an unchanged life and then go preach to other people that they need to change. Example is the biggest tool of the gospel. Living in such a way that your neighbors, your friends, and your family look at your life and have to ask questions. They have to look at your life and ask, why are they so different? What is it that makes them tick? Why do they have such peace in this situation when they shouldn't? The greatest opportunities for gospel conversations happen, at least in my experience, when people are looking for practical help in life, and we've shown them over time that we might have an answer. In other words, long-term relationships and examples of, of godly living. When people are looking for practical help, then our answer can be, yes, I'll tell you the secret of my great marriage, or I'll, I'll help you handle confrontations with family, or whatever it is. But the answer, and we have to be able to say this to people, the answer is going to have to include Jesus. Because if you want to know what I think about this practical situation, there's no way that I can explain where I've come to without the help of Jesus. And so we bring the gospel into the practical. Without Christ, I can't answer your question. Live in such a way that people want to ask you about the gospel. When we apply the gospel, when we live the gospel, it has the power to tear down those strongholds and lofty ideas that the world around us has. What we don't win everyone over. We won't win everyone over. Paul certainly didn't. And neither did Jesus. Paul's critics appeared to have stooped pretty low, even in their attack to him. In verse 10, he refers back to their attack on his weighty letters versus his actual presence. He actually quotes them here to say, His letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech of no account. Paul's critics were telling everyone that he shouldn't be listened to because he is not a good speaker. Even more than that, they were saying that his bodily presence was unimpressive. Now, Greek culture, highly valued speech. Orators were compared, criticized, and challenged. Um, A good example would be the story of Demosthenes, uh, 4th century BC. He's a very well-known orator. But before he was well-liked, he was criticized and mocked for his weak appearance and his weak speech. So the story is Demosthenes had to commit to physical and vocal training in order to gain fame as an order. In other words, he had to work out, he had to practice speaking. The story goes that he had to hold pebbles in his mouth while reciting speeches from memory while running uphill both ways. Now, that's no doubt, that's, that's fantasy, right? But, but it shows to what extent the Greek culture that Corinth is steeped in values a good speaker. They valued and honored speakers who could impress. Giving a speech then was a performance in which you should look good, sound good, and be able to impress people with your wit and wisdom. So when Paul comes to them, he doesn't fit the standard of a good-looking Greek orator. Right? He references this back in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the, gospel, the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So this is a letdown to Greek Corinthians, and no doubt to his critics. Greek culture loved wisdom and wit, loved things that were beautiful, despised manual labor. So here comes Paul, a traveling preacher, who insisted on making tents for a living. His preaching is unimpressive, and his appearance is apparently not very striking. In fact, verse 10 sounds like they're calling him ugly. He preaches, though, a a message that then has the power to destroy their strongholds, their lofty ideas against God. Probably some of the most encouraging words to me as someone who preaches somewhat regularly is to know that the great Apostle Paul uh, wasn't that great of a speaker. But in all honesty, it's a reminder for all of us. The reminder is this. Jews demand miracles. Greeks seek wisdom. But we, what? Preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles. The fact that Paul did not have a lot to offer the Corinthians is exactly the proof of the power of the gospel he brought. If the spread of the gospel then depended on people being extremely well-spoken, we are in trouble. If the proof of Paul's authority came in the form of his being attractive and well-spoken, then it would have something to do with him, right? That's simply not the gospel. That's simply not the gospel. The gospel is not reliant on you. It's not reliant on me. It's simply based on the perfect work of Jesus Christ. Our reliance on anything else is a distraction from that fact. So now this isn't simply about the person delivering the message. It's about the message. Verse 5 said, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is a challenge for us, not to rely on our wit, not to rely on our apologetic uh, knowledge, but to be willing to go into situations in which we are uncomfortable, to go into situations in which we actually have to rely on the Spirit to whisper in our ear. To go into situations which we know we're going to look foolish. In the United States in 2022, we are definitely not a Greek culture. The censure of our culture is definitely not built around intellect, but not surprisingly, it's still in direct opposition to the gospel. Jews demand miracles. The Greeks sought wisdom. Our culture in 2022 seeks power. We want to be in the party that wins the election. We want to be on the side of history that wins. We want to be in the most powerful group. The beautiful part of all this is that the answer to the Jews, the answer to the Greeks... And the answer to our culture now is the same. That's the only thing that hasn't changed. The challenge is different. The answer is the same. The answer remains Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to the Greeks, and weakness to the world in 2022. We come right back to the paradox that we discovered in verse 1. Christ The Almighty, meek and gentle, creator, sustainer of all that there ever was and all that there ever will be, Christ became human and humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. And he did it because we couldn't. No amount of miracles, no amount of wisdom, no amount of power can eclipse that fact. None of that can eclipse the cross of Christ. We come here week after week after week to remind ourselves of that. Because we are entrenched in a world that is seeking something very different. And because we are exiles, sojourners in a world that is bent on seeking power. But we come here on Sundays to huddle. We huddle with our brothers and sisters. We sing and pray and we feast. When we take the body and the blood of Christ in the act of communion, we proclaim the Lord's death. We hold high the cross of Christ. We proclaim the cross of Christ until he returns. That is what we hold fast to. That is what we cling to. The thing that changes us and makes our lives so different from the world around us the thing that our neighbors and coworkers can look at and wonder about what is it that makes us so different it is simply the cross christ crucified changes everything let's pray father we thank you so much that we get to be weak we get to be humble We get to rely on you. We are thankful, God, that you are strong and that you are the fountain of all knowledge and wisdom and power. Lord, the the world around us looks for something that we have, and we have it in Christ. We pray, Lord, that we would be the kind of people that would live the kind of lives outwardly in this world that would cause our neighbors, friends, family, and co-workers to ask us about the gospel. Let us live so boldly, so differently, that people must confront the gospel when they look at our lives. We thank you for Christ and his cross. Amen.